Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today, we are in conversation with Dr. Sylvia Knight, Head of Education Services at the Royal Meteorological Society. The Society's aim is to promote understanding of weather and climate, something which is of growing importance as our UK climate becomes more unpredictable and extreme. In Sylvia's words, meteorology is where geography meets physics. Thank you for joining us today, Sylvia. Firstly, could you explain what you do for the Royal Meteorological Society? So my role at the Society is basically to support the teaching of weather and climate wherever it's found in UK schools. So whichever subject it's in or whichever level it's being taught at, just to try and support teachers who are teaching the subject. Can I ask, topically, what effect is coronavirus having on our air quality at the moment? Well, it really has been quite dramatic. Um, I think particularly um, over the last week, we've seen some spectacular images coming out of India with views of the Himalayas that people haven't seen for, for decades, sometimes even for generations. And that's because the, the air quality has been improving so much. Um, they've seen, I think, drops in up to 50% in the pollutants in the atmosphere in the 24 hours following the lockdown that they've had there. And we're specifically talking about things like the nitrogen oxides, um, which are typically produced by diesel vehicles, and the fine particulates um, that really have a dramatic effect on, on the quality of the air that we that we breathe. And I've seen that much more locally here where I live. I overlook Manchester and looking down over Manchester in the first few days after the lockdown, you could still see the kind of polluted haze over the centre of Manchester. And it didn't improve immediately because of the weather with the high pressure that we've been having. The air pollution that was already in the air over Manchester was just being trapped in a layer over Manchester and it was still there. But then as the weather has has slowly changed, we've had a bit more of a wind to shift that pollution. You slowly saw the, the layer of haze over Manchester being dispersed. And I think that's really key when we're thinking about air pollution, that it's not just about what's being emitted, but it's also about the weather conditions that are going on at the time and how that pollution is being moved around and where, where it's affecting. And so we have been seeing the air quality improve all around the world, from LA to India um, and Italy in particular, as there's been less, less traffic and also some of the industrial areas have been, been shut down as well. So it's had a really dramatic effect. I think in China in particular, the, the air quality really did improve quite dramatically, but it's now slowly returning to normal as the as the industry starts up. Although it's yeah, it's probably worth noting that Beijing did have a severe, the second severe smog event of the year, even while they were in lockdown because the blast furnaces kept going. Um, and so there was still a pollution source. And that, again, coupled with the weather, could still have an impact on, on the air quality there. I did notice this week in the press, it was reported nitrogen dioxide levels had crept back up already since the lockdown had been eased, which is a bit of a reality check. Well, in China, yeah, those sorts of pollutants, they, yeah, the... Um, concentration in the atmosphere is very quick to react to what's being emitted so as, as everything's slowly starting back up in China you would have seen those levels rising back to pretty much normal levels quite quite rapidly and it's going to have a, 
a longer term impact as well, because um, we're seeing places like Birmingham and Oxford and Leeds applying for a delay to their long term plans to reduce city centre pollution through regulations on traffic in their city centres. So they want to delay those plans now because of the impact of the coronavirus on on businesses and on the cities. So we're maybe not going to see air quality improving more long term in those places as a result of what's going on right now. Can you explain how the virus has affected weather forecasting as well as current weather patterns? The other interesting thing that we've been seeing about about air quality is that there's some evidence that people living in more polluted air have a far higher risk of succumbing to the to the coronavirus than people who live in cleaner air. I think in, in Italy in particular, they've seen that the death rates have been particularly high in northern Italy, where um, the air is much more polluted. So that's been a real wake-up call, I think, about the longer-term impacts of living in poor air quality. Can you explain how the virus is affecting our weather forecasts? Well, that's a really interesting one that people might find a bit more surprising. So we make thousands of weather observations every day, which are fed into the computer models to generate our weather forecasts. Um, and the more we know about the current state of the atmosphere, um, the better the forecast is. And the sources of those um, weather observations are all sorts. So it might be weather stations on the ground, buoys out at sea, radar, satellite information. But probably actually more surprisingly, we also get a lot of measurements from aircraft. So for example, on March the 3rd, there were 50,400 weather reports fed into the computer models to generate um, the weather forecasts. Whereas by April the 2nd, that had dropped to just 10,000 reports. So there was far less data being fed into the forecast models to improve our, our understanding of what the atmosphere was doing right now. There's an estimate that if we removed all aircraft data from the weather forecast, the forecast accuracy would reduce by 15%. Obviously, we're not there yet, but there is a lot less data going into those those forecasts. And it's not just aeroplane measurements that are being affected. All the weather stations that we have on the ground and at sea, they all need maintenance, um, whether that's just batteries being changed or leaves being removed from engages or whatever it is. And a lot of that maintenance has now come to a temporary halt. I think the effort is being focused on the the more key ones, so maybe some of the radar stations and that sorts of things, but a lot of the other sources of weather data are being slowly lost. So again, that is going to have an impact on our on our weather forecast in the short term. What happens to those weather recordings that drop from 50,400 reports down to 10,000? Um, is the gap filled? So computer models are incredibly clever at the way they assimilate all this data particularly from aircraft, it's not going to be coming from the same place in the same time every day. So there are very, very clever algorithms that assimilate all the data that's available and, as you say, fills in the gaps. And that'll always be changing. And just as there's less data, then there's more gaps to fill and the computer algorithms have to do that. That is fascinating. What effect is coronavirus having on the climate worldwide? Well, if we think about greenhouse gases and maybe in particular about carbon dioxide, the main sources are the use of fossil fuels, cement production and also land use changes. And it's easy to imagine that some of those sources are going to be going to have had an impact on them because of all the industrial shutdown because of the coronavirus. So, for example, in China, carbon emissions fell by about 25 percent over the four week period where they were in the most severe of the lockdown. And that was because there was a lot less transport and also a lot less industry. So particularly coal-fired power stations and oil-based industries were affected by the lockdown. 
but I think it's interesting if you look at the, the carbon dioxide values being measured at Mauna Loa in Hawaii, which is one of the longest data sets we've got of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide values in April this year so far have been higher already than they were in April 2019. So despite the fact that we're seeing less carbon dioxide being emitted, we're still at a higher place this year than we were last year. And I think that's quite a sobering thought, really. And what happens in the future is going to be really critical as countries come out of lockdown. Governments are going to be very keen to jumpstart their economies again. There's a real pressure to make up for lost time in manufacturing and all sorts. And typically in the past, after recessions, we've we've seen to see greenhouse gas emissions really rebounding after the recession. So it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for governments to try and stimulate their economies in ways that don't immediately increase greenhouse gas emissions. But I think possibly being slightly pessimistic, maybe that's not going to happen. And maybe governments are now just going to be thinking about short term economics and preventing or limiting recessions. And maybe we are just going to see those those greenhouse gas emissions rebound pretty rapidly after we all come out of lockdown. There has been some talk about there being a new green wave of initiatives, but being pragmatic, it sounds like it might worsen. It would be lovely to see countries taking this as, as an opportunity to promote those green initiatives, you know, to rather than pumping a whole lot of money into stimulating, re-stimulating the traditional industries, instead pumping that same amount of money into the the opportunities that climate change presents for innovation and for changing to a much less polluting industrial base. And I think particularly with COP26 approaching in this country and the way that we're looking at decoupling ourselves from, from the EU, I think it would be really exciting if our government took this as an opportunity to really think carefully about where any stimulus packages that they, that they put in place now, where that money spent. Are there any other opportunities that the coronavirus presents in the build-up to COP26 that has now been postponed to next year? Well, we were all really excited when we heard that COP26 was going to be in our country this year. I think with all the political and media attention that it was going to stimulate on climate change, it was a real opportunity for a spotlight on the UK to to be seen to be really leading the way in, in greenhouse gas reductions and in developing new technologies and new opportunities for for moving to a much greener economy and i think specifically in education it was it was a it was a real opportunity to showcase what a curriculum could do to really generate a climate literate generation and to provide the country with the people with the skills and the knowledge to to generate the the technologies and the economic tools and all the sorts of things that we'll need to really move to a greener economy but like you said, it's been postponed now. We're still waiting for real details about when it's going to happen, where it's going to happen. So we can just be hopeful that it's still going to be used as an opportunity for the government to showcase the UK in terms of what can be done in terms of both greenhouse gas reductions and and what we can do in education as well. What has been the impact of the school climate change strikes on general climate change rhetoric? What we've seen over the past one and a half years or so has really been quite incredible. Since about when the IPCC published their 1.5 degrees report back in 2018, we've seen this massive growth in the amount of that climate change has been talked about, particularly in, in younger generations. And I think what Greta Thunberg and others have done have 
has just been incredible in capturing the imagination of, of that generation. They've generated more airtime, both in the media and in Parliament, than pretty much anything else has achieved. We're now seeing that the coronavirus has, has swamped everything else, but it'll be interesting to see what happens afterwards. You know, are we just going to be thinking about economics again as we as we emerge from the impacts of the virus, or are we going to go back to, to climate change being a real focus, both for schools, for young people, and for the government? It will be... Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see. The young generation have certainly been galvanised. There's a new phrase I've heard teenagers talking about, which is eco-anxiety, which is that the whole situation seems overwhelming and the middle and older generations aren't addressing it as much as the youngsters. Eco-anxiety is concerning, but I think it goes back to something that I've always been very keen to, to say, which is that Let's not see climate change as a as a threat or something really negative, but let's see it as an opportunity. Um, let's see it as an opportunity for not just developing greener technologies, but also for developing technologies which have other social and moral consequences for closing the rich-poor divide both in countries and between countries and all sorts of things like that. This is a real opportunity for us to change the way the world works, really. And it should be seen in a very positive light as an opportunity rather than a negative, oh, you can't do that anymore sort of sort of light. How do we expect the climate to change in the UK going forward? We've been saying for a long time now that we expect to get warmer, wetter winters in the UK, um, mostly associated with storms and hotter, drier summers, which will lead to, to heat waves and probably more of the, the fires that we've seen over the last couple of years. And that basic message really hasn't changed for for decades now. We're, we're pretty confident on what's going to happen here. I think in terms of climate change, our main threat is going to be from flooding, whether that's flash floods or winter floods associated with storms, or whether it's it's coastal flooding as we see the sea level rise. What should a climate literate generation of school leavers look like? Well, we feel quite strongly that every student should leave school with a very basic climate literacy that lets them engage with the messages that are coming out from scientists, from the media, from politicians, and lets them make informed decisions about what their own opportunities are and their own responsibilities as well. But it's also really important that some students leave school prepared for a career in climate science or in engineering or in economics or in developing any of the, the technologies or the science or the, um, or the economics which let us avoid or adapt to climate change. And if you had students at A-level asking you how to move into studying climate change, perhaps even in higher education, what type of subject combination would you suggest to take them forward into studying the discipline or into a job in the industry? Well, it depends on exactly what they want to do and where their focus wants to be. But obviously, geography is very useful, but so is maths and physics and the other sciences as well. How can we make weather teaching more relevant to facilitate students to leave school and study the subjects you've just listed? Well, today we've been we've been talking about the weather and climate and mainly relating it to the current big news, which is the coronavirus. And I think that's probably my my, my main advice that You've got to show students just how much the weather affects them and how relevant it is to to what's going on outside, you know, at the time when you're teaching it. It's really important to always use examples that people relate to or that their communities 
remember what is happening right now what do you remember what are the bigger weather events do you realize that the weather and the climate have an impact on pretty much every area of of everyday life whether that's just how you feel or what you're eating or or anything really the other piece of advice that I that I like to give is that it's really nice to just get people outside and thinking about the weather and whatever area of field work you're doing chances are that the weather is having an impact on it it might just be in terms of what answers people give to, to to surveys you know if the weather's good people tend to be a lot more positive than if the weather's grey and drizzling and a little bit boring and unpleasant so yeah get outside and and think about the weather and the other thing I'd say is that if you're if you're teaching about the weather then then bring the processes to life when I'm teaching the things that people will remember years after they've they've been taught by me they won't remember me but they will remember the simple demonstrations that I've shown them and those those demonstrations really bring the the physical processes that govern what the weather's doing to life they so do I remember fondly all my science experiments at school of course just to finish with A-level geography students in mind who are contemplating their A-level courseworks or their NEAs in meteorology or something to do with weather and climate, could you suggest any websites or data sources for their secondary information? It depends on exactly what information it is they're looking for. If they're looking for local weather data, then there are a couple of sites which will provide some data fairly close to where they are so for example the weather observations website wow.metoffice.gov.uk has got a whole network of weather stations around the country wonderground would be another one like that those both contain weather data from a, a very wide range of quality of weather stations so you do need to be a little bit careful about about the quality so a very simple weather station might overread high temperatures and that sorts of thing so you you probably want to to treat it a little bit carefully but you can find very local data in that if you need high quality data then you're probably going to have to approach the met office and see whether they can give you access to that if you want weather charts and there are plenty of, of sources of those yeah so it just depends on what you're looking for really fantastic just one last question weather and climate can seem like a vast concept how would you advise someone to hone in on a particular element, i.e. how could they complete an achievable, localised project for the coursework we were just talking about? I think the first thing to consider really is what data and equipment they've got available to them. So that'd be going to see what secondary sources of data they've, they've got, but also, you know, realistically, what what measuring equipment have they got? The Society's got a couple of videos which gives an overview of the sort of instruments that might be available and their their pros and cons in terms of, of how you might use them. But also, if you're thinking about what sort of project to do, then you maybe want to consider what your, what your local issues are. Are they related to urban climates? What matters to you? What captures your imagination? What weather-related things are the people around you talking about? So, for example, if you're a, a sort of arty type of person... You might want to look at the the weather related to pollution levels and how that affects the sky colour, maybe. If football's something to ma- that matters to you, then maybe you care about changing rainfall patterns and, and how that impacts on how many local football games can go ahead and that sort of thing. You might want to look at community memories, particularly if you live in a in a fairly mixed community. You know, what weather events from around the world are the people who you associate with remember and how do those memories of extreme weather relate to what what's actually happened in those places 
I'm a rower. I go rowing when I can. And when I'm out on the canal, it's really obvious that as new buildings are being put up along the canal, they're having a real impact on the wind patterns that we experience on the canal. Um, so that would be something that particularly interested me. So, yeah, just choose something that, 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 that interests you and then see what's available to you to, to study that weather. What a great range of ideas. Hopefully that will really encourage geography students. Thank you very much for joining us today, Sylvia. Uh, thank you very much for, for this opportunity to talk to you. Um, I thought I'd just finish by mentioning the book that we're developing together with the Royal Geographical Society. So we're going to be distributing a, a textbook to schools for the teaching of 11 to 14 geography, covering a wide range of, of weather and climate topics. And that's something that we're delighted to be able to do. And we're really excited about seeing that coming out later this year. As are we. So listeners must keep an eye out for it. Thank you once again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.